Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Welcome to the Drive Time Show. We are now currently live. And unfortunately, times are not very good nowadays. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can't f- I'm kind of finding it hard to be equally en- energetic. Mm-hmm. But we've got a show to do. And uh, for the next two hours, we're actually going to be live. So we're going to be taking in your comments, your thoughts as well. And to be quite honest with you, you can share with us kind of today, whatever you feel like sharing with us. Obviously, we have two topics as we normally do. We always have selected topics. If you're driving right now, you're you're sitting down somewhere and you've got a lot on your chest, on on, on your mind, and you just want to tell someone about it, Mm -hmm. or you want to share your comments about it, you're very welcome to call in. And the number is 0208. 687-7878 uh, You can tweet to us At The Voice of Islam UK Or drop us a DM On Instagram Also at The Voice of Islam UK as well And right now We're going to be discussing The global crisis of hunger And I think Just before we went live mm-hmm. We all just listened to mm-hmm. A very interesting anecdote okay. From the time of Hazrat Usman radiallahu an. Mm-hmm. And I think that was Quite fittingly there <laughs> Uh, because what I know we're going to explore this theme in a little bit more depth uh, in the current following hour mm-hmm. but what it was basically telling us is that in the time of great famine and drought in Medina which is basically exactly kind of what the situation that we're going to be looking at now Hazrat Usman who was a very influential and financially successful businessman when he came to Medina in this in this state of drought mm-hmm. and famine mm-hmm. he had a lot of goods with him mm-hmm. a lot of stock with him he could have benefited by selling that very easily but rather than doing that he chose to the give that stock out which he had accumulated for business he chose to give it away for free mm. to people who were in need and I think yeah that pretty much sums up uh, from an Islamic perspective already Absolutely. what is the sentiment of how we as Muslims should look at mm-hmm. helping other people and there's a lot going on around the world right now we have the conflicts and uh, the issues and in fact it's a genocide which is happening right now Absolutely, in yeah. Palestine, mm-hmm. uh, which is not the topic today, but mm-hmm. it is something which is always in everyone's minds and hearts. Yeah. But we do have a jam-packed show. Uh, may God actually help everybody around the world, whether they're suffering from hunger, poverty, or they are being suffered in war. May Allah make it easy for them and alleviate their suffering. Amen. Right, in, Imran. Yeah. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, our merciful, uh, I think this is a very important topic um, uh, concern, you know, regarding especially the uh, if we talk about the current situation, uh, what is happening in, uh, you know, uh, all around the world. And especially uh, there is a humanitarian, uh, you know, uh, I would say crisis in Gaza right now. So uh, the global food crisis is just not a uh, matter 
of statistics and economics. It's a humanitarian concern that touches every corner of the globe. Hmm. Now, the ongoing global food crisis is a parsing problem with many aspects that affects countries all over the world. From 135 million in 53 countries pre-pandemic to the 345 millions in 79 countries in 2023. The number of wow. people experiencing or at risk of acute food insecurity has surged dramatically in the span of two years. This is a quite a worrying statistic, Imran. I mean, mm-hmm. if, you know what? I wouldn't be. I, I wouldn't even blame myself for having at some point mistakenly thought mm-hmm. that maybe the food crisis is happening because there's some kind of food shortage in the world. Right. Absolutely. And I think about it now mm-hmm. because perhaps I've read up on it a little bit. But that is obviously not the case. Mm-hmm. And you would be, like I said, not be blamed to think that, okay, you know, there could be some role of food shortage to play in the current crisis. And then randomly one day, mm-hmm. and I thought it just came up, I was reading about food wastage okay. and how much we waste. Okay. And uh, I came up with a statistic. This was about two years ago I read. So it's probably not, it's maybe a bit outdated. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, the reality of it still persists, which is, that even if we take one country such as the US, mm-hmm. we're not talking about the whole world right now, uh-huh. and we are able to salvage the food which that one country alone wastes, we can end starvation. Wow. I mean, that's how much food we waste. Wow. And this isn't even food that, that's gone off. Mm-hmm. This isn't food that's lost, it's gone by, you know, it's sell by day and it's expiry day and everything, uh, every other day you can imagine. Mm-hmm. It's normal food which businesses are prepared to sell on the day and no one's bought it. So what they're going to do, they're either throwing it away. And, and of course, I'm not saying, actually, we're going to look into this as well, I hope. Mm. There are obviously alternative measures that businesses and organizations are taking to prevent this. But the statistics are still there. And I know you said it in the beginning. Mm-hmm. It's not just about statistics. This is something that people feel very, very harshly in reality. And mm. it's not too far from home. We've mm. still got food banks mm-hmm. that not only exist in the UK mm-hmm. but they're being used very heavily week in week out I was on social socials uh, last week mm-hmm. and I see someone in East London posting a picture of a food bank mm-hmm. it was just a regular food bank that you would have in a town it wasn't even a big city right Okay. and there was a line that was extending from one end of the street and I couldn't wow. even see the end of the line mm-hmm. of people who were attending these food banks. And this is this is UK. This, no? is, sixth, the U- this is largest economy. This is UK. <laughs> this is England. Yeah. This is London. Yeah. <laughs> London we're talking yeah. about. Yeah. So the global crisis, if it's happening here, of course, mm. of course. it's happening in many other places yeah. as well. So United States have you know stated that there is enough food to feed everyone. And mm. shouldn't the fact that we produce enough food to feed everyone make hunger an unthinkable problem rather than a global crisis. Now, (laughs) Allah the Almighty says in the Holy Quran that and they give food in spite of love for it Hmm. to the needy, Hmm. the orphan and the captive. This is the uh, from chapter 76 verse 8. I think uh, think it's a very true statement from the United uh, Nations that there is enough food for everyone. I think there is another problem. Food wastage is one of the problem. Uh, Food chain you know, um, uh, is is being disrupted because of you know Ukraine war and uh, you know COVID nineteen pandemic because of the coronavirus. There are lots of um, thing which we are going to discuss. That what are the causes of the this global food crisis? Now, the I think I think we we'll have a guest for the uh, for, for, for first guest. Yeah. So obviously, like I said, this topic 
it is about statistics. Mm-hmm. It's about realities in the ground. Mm-hmm. And right now, we're also going to be going to get some expert analysis on this issue. Because, like I said, this is something which, with those who have been dealing with this day in, day out, will be able to give us a very in-depth analysis mm-hmm. of kind of what we're dealing with here. Maybe, perhaps, we don't even know the bigger picture of what exactly is happening. So, we have actually quite a few guests with us today. Mm-hmm. I'm very lucky f- to have that. And our very first guest is Oxfam's policy lead on climate climate resilient communities, Madeleine Meyer. Mm-hmm. And um, I hope that we have them on the line with us today. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi Peace be upon you. How are you doing today? Good. And how are you? I'm good. Thank you very much for, first of all, coming on to the show. We're doing very good as well, as well as we can probably in the current situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are coming to you uh, for some insight into among the many crises in the world. There is one crisis that I think this particular one, which we perhaps shouldn't have to talk about. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't be talking about this, but we are. Then yeah. that, that is the reality. So, Madelon, we have a, a couple of questions for you. You are the, o- the policy lead for Oxfam on climate resilient communities. Um, first of all, tell us a little bit about that. How does Oxfam actually collaborate with governments, local organizations and other international partners to create sustainable solutions for food security? And what role do these collaborations play in the long term hunger alleviation strategies? Yeah, thank you. That's a very good question and thanks for bringing it up. But first, I would like to provide a little bit of background about what is the problem and its drivers. Yes, please. So, one in 10 people globally are facing hunger. That is close to 800 million people who don't know when or where to get their next meal on a daily basis. 800 million, you said? said. Yeah, they face chronic hunger. Now, on top of that, there's at least half of them, 345 million people across 79 countries that are facing acute food insecurity with 50 million people on the brink of starvation. And these are big figures, Hmm. but it's just for the audiences Um, to realize, yeah. Sorry, what do you, so so for the layman out there, including ourselves, Mm -hmm. acute food security, what do you mean by that? Yeah, good question. That effectively means that their lives and livelihoods are at risk. Okay. So they need immediate support for their lives and livelihoods. So, yeah, at the brink of starvation, it means we've done recent calculations where one uh, person is likely to die of hunger every 48 seconds. The length of this interview, people actually starve of hunger. um, And that, yeah, is technically called acute hunger. Okay. Mm. Wow. Okay. So, Madeline, uh, definitely, you know, this this uh, global crisis have some effect on, you know, social and, uh, you know, economic and environmental impacts. So what are the social and economic and environmental impacts of the food crisis on vulnerable communities, especially? Yeah, so millions of people are skipping meals, are turning off the heating if they have a roof over their head to start with. Yeah. They're falling behind on bills and they wonder what they can do to survive because we know inflation is rising everywhere. It's happening in the UK and Europe. Price hikes are particularly devastating for the low-wage workers uh, and their health and livelihoods were already vulnerable COVID-19. And just realize that people in poorer countries they spend more than twice as much of their income on food than those in rich countries. Oh. So what happens? Mm. They first cope by eating less nutritious meals. Yeah. Then they go down on the number of meals a day, take the children out of schools, girls most likely to save on expenses. And we even hear of cases where girls are moved off earlier than usual, save them up to feed. And that is not just devastating for the girl in question, 
but it actually destroys an entire generation because she's likely to give birth prematurely hmm. to a baby that she will have trouble feeding. And at the same time, just imagine what's happening. Food billionaires, they have seen their collective wealth increase by nearly $400 billion wow, since goodness. 2020. <laughs> so it just shows that power in the food system is critically imbalanced and is concentrated in the, in the hands of multinational corporates. And, and just to give another example, like the Cargill family with three other companies in the world, they control 70% of the global agriculture market. <laughs> Last year, 70%. Cargill made the biggest profits in its history. For six hmm. billion dollars in net income and i'm no. not saying that these phenomena of the people starving and the profits billion profits that these companies make are directly correlated but it just shows a deep deep inequality in a global food system which is unacceptable absolutely i mean this is a, a much bigger picture and we're glad that you've come on today to kind of give us that perspective mm -hmm. as well which we can further discuss and you you also mentioned that obviously among the many different reasons why things there's inflation there's other issues there's the covid's hit in the past mm -hmm. few years mm -hmm. and of course you serving within oxfam you also respond to other crises emergencies conflicts natural disasters a lot of these things you know some of them are happening right now as we speak how does mm -hmm. oxfam take those situations into account uh, which might not necessarily be related to, you know, the elite, but more to do with issues and natural disasters that are happening in the world. W what do you do when it comes to these issues? Yeah, I do want to mention that eventually we do call the duty bearers to account. So we do, for example, when you look at the the famine or like the brink of famine in, hmm. in the Horn of Africa, we do have been focused since... In 20, we've been saying there's warnings of this drought and we need to have anticipatory action by national governments, the international community to react, and they failed alarmingly. Now, in the face of that failing response by the international community, what we do effectively is we carry out humanitarian relief operations. So, for example, in East Africa, we're helping hundreds of thousands of people across the region. Mm -hmm. I say water, with food and cash, with long-term support to rebuild their lives. But we need urgent support to ramp up operations. Mm -hmm. But aside from just stating plasters to wounds effectively, which what we need to do for life-saving support, but we also call for like, addressing the root causes for systemic change. So we do advocate for long-term investment for small-scale producers. Mm -hmm. Because effectively, they are the backbone of the local economies. Mm -hmm. These small-scale producers produce the majority of the food for the community, which has been ignored and neglected for decades. Imagine if we invest in their potential, they could produce more for their own family. They would have surplus to sell on the market. They could generate some income with which to pay the education, the healthcare bills. So do both short-term immediate relief as well as long-term investment. So on the one hand, we do the advocacy, mm -hmm. but then we also support our partners on the ground with agriculture programs. And we kind of take them as pilot examples. This is what ought to be happening. Mm -hmm. And then bring the government you just scale up these kind of initiatives mm -hmm. great so marin what are the key strategies uh, you know to enhance foods you know system sustainability if we if you can just yeah thanks yeah. thanks for that question because the hopeful message is like hunger we've just talked about the problems and but hunger is man-made it's a political choice which means mm -hmm. we can also man can also solve it if we want to and there's many many things that can be done so like what I just said, we need to up the food production at the local and the regional levels. 
We also need to fight the climate crisis right. so that the people's crops are not being destroyed by droughts and floods. And given that imbalance in the food system, we need to counteract that powerful monopoly of the agri-food business. And then when you talk about the kind of investment we need to do for the small-scale producers, it's about the diversification of the food system. It's about putting the local indigenous communities in the lead, making sure they are enabled to produce more climate-resilient food crops. Think about sorghum, cassava, millets, mm -hmm. rather than continuing importing globally mm. traded staple crops like maize okay. and wheat, because it really also bears on the resources that the country, their import bills are massive, right. but they're in huge debt distress because mm -hmm. they can't afford to buy these foods anymore, actually, mm -hmm. and they're at the brink of faulting on their debts. So it's just getting, yeah. Sorry, well, it kind of sounds like you're saying, like, you know, feed a man a fish, feed him for a day, teach a man how to fish freedom for life and it's more about making mm. and allowing communities to stand up on their own feet and that that sounds like an amazing initiative and with regards to that I actually had a question with with these kinds of initiatives where we're trying to get countries communities to be self-sustainable what initiatives are in place currently to ensure that that they do have equitable, equitable access to kind of nutritious food and especially when we're talking about like marginalized populations yeah thank you because I'd like to share an example example of programs that we do in Zambia and Zimbabwe. Okay. So people grow local food plants there. I don't know if you've ever heard of spider plants. It's, no. it's like bitter, it's a leafy green. It looks a bit like a weed. Okay. And it's widely eaten in many African countries. And it's very, very nutritious. But often these plants are associated from suffering in the hunger, hunger period. Then they use and bridge gaps when other foods are not available. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, uh, they're really, really nutritious, but they're not being very, very well researched. And a lot of the knowledge, best hmm. with elders and with the indigenous peoples, they're not necessarily that knowledge is in universities or academic papers. So what we do is work with the indigenous peoples and smallholder farmers to see what are the best quality seeds, how you actually get by seeds, and how you properly grow them. Um, so... Also, the growing awareness of the importance of not only the calories, but also the nutrition for the healthy diet. Uh, it's oftentimes the women that cultivate these crops, so it's also aimed to empower them uh, to increase their production, to improve their livelihood, to selling the surplus to the market. So these are kind of initiatives that we're supporting to show um, that at the local level, there is so much potential for better uh, production levels, more nutritious right. foods. Absolutely. Madden, thank you very much for coming on and giving us this insight because at least what we can walk away from today's mm -hmm. discussion is that there are communities, powers, forces out there for good trying mm -hmm. to resolve the issue. And Madden, we thank you for being a part of that as well. And we hope that we can have you on again in our show sometime in the future. Thank you very much. Peace be upon you. Have a thank great day. Thank you very much. Thank you like very much. That was Madeline and we, who is actually the Oxfam's policy lead on climate resilient communities. She's given us, a, Imran, mm -hmm. a, a bigger picture of what exactly is going on around the world. Uh, there's a lot of different things that have happened in the past mm -hmm. few decades, which have kind of changed the way that people receive their food, uh, the quality of the food itself, mm -hmm. and of course, the cost of it. Absolutely. And so all of these things make 
you know a huge impact, mm. and we already spoken in the beginning about food wastes as mm. well. So, what what are your thoughts on? What's I think what's um, been said? It, it was really surprising for me when she said that you know uh, nearly eight hundred million people. One in ten. One in ten. People. I mean, that's like imagine you have two yeah. families of five. Yeah, yeah you get uh, like a ten seat van. Ah, uh, uh, yes, yeah, that's, so that's it. One yeah. of them is going to be hungry. Face you know global food crisis and nearly uh, you know um, more than three hundred million people. Uh, face acute, uh, you know, food crisis, right. which means they they are deprived of it's, basic necessities. It's severe. And yeah. uh, you know, this also points point out that the inequalities in the distribution of resources. And she also said that you know, uh, these big companies they make I don't know uh, enormous profits mm. in only in, you know in during the COVID pandemic, and while the other people were just striving. So, uh, so you, you know, but it is but it is about self-sustainability at the end of the day mm. I think one of the key points that I picked up from Madeline is that import foods technically are not the way forward mm. although, yes, it's, although it's a luxury mm-hmm. and it's a commodity even in the, here in the UK yeah, a lot of import comes in yeah. we are on island 50% at the end of the yeah, day import, yeah. okay. but we need to be able to stand up on our own feet mm-hmm. and that's important and that's, that's kind of one of the major ways that you can basically solve some of these problems and what can we do about this? Mm. And I remember I was thinking, uh, who's done something like this before? Mm. What comes to my mind? I remember mm. that in Ghana, mm-hmm. there was an effort to cultivate wheat. Yeah. Do, you yes. some, do you remember this? Yeah, I think uh, His Holiness, uh, the um, fifth um, caliph from the Muslim community, uh, when uh, he was devoting his life, uh, he was sent uh, there. Uh, through the Nusra Jahan scheme, right, and uh, because he has his master in agriculture, so the, so he, the, the leader of the Hamdi Muslim yeah, community, Hamdi community was actually deployed in Ghana, yes. before he actually was a, a caliph. caliph. Yes, absolutely, and uh, he uh, conducted a successful experiment of growing wheat in the Ghanaian soil, uh-huh. and I think, uh, and that was I think uh, also registered in in their government that this was a very successful. It was the first experiment, time. First time that they were successfully yeah. able to achieve that. Absolutely, and I think this is just one example. Hmm. Of the sentiment of what we should be doing around mm. the world, going to places, finding out their ideal crop, maximizing mm. its cultivation, and if the, if it's not being done, figuring out mm-hmm. how we can do it. Mm. And I think Madeline on the call also talks about certain mm. crops and certain weeds that, although they could be potentially mm-hmm. amazing for less economically developed areas, although there hasn't been enough research. That's mm-hmm. gone into finding out exactly how we can do it. Absolutely. And that's the key, research. And I think this is a, an issue because what it seems to me is that this comes down to injustice again. There's a lot mm-hmm. of things when it comes to big pharma, mm-hmm. when it comes to right now, we've got the food crisis as well. There's a lot of things. Had we had the sufficient research on these things, we could have changed a lot. Mm-hmm. I think recently I was also off topic, also looking into, for example, cancer. Mm-hmm. And there's been patchy research. Okay. On, on certain methods of curing cancer apart from chemo like melatonin and other things like this mm-hmm. but because of purely the lack of research we're not able to come to a definitive conclusion mm-hmm. although mm-hmm. if it's very strongly commended that if we did this research we would come to groundbreaking conclusions mm-hmm. the question is why are we not doing it mm-hmm. and Madelon's although it was an inquisition although it was a suggestion yes mm-hmm. big pharma big, um, even um, agriculture right now it's all in the hands of a few mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. food for thought it makes Absolutely. you wonder. Yeah, but yeah, hmm. Imran. I think this is this is what, when I were talking about inequalities in the distribution of resources. Now, United Nation uh, have an uh, you know some some nation have an abundance abundance of food, lots of food, right? While others struggling with you know uh, with basics, for basic yeah. necessities. And the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals make it evident that fair 
resources distribution is at the heart of achieving global prosperity and sustainability and i think this is the point uh, which his holiness hazrat mirza masur ahmed the fifth caliph from the muslim community is uh, i think uh, is uh, is uh, he is mentioning in his friday sermons and in his wherever he go that the fair the justice and fairness of the resources if you can achieve that then only you can establish the peace mm. into the world i think uh, this is very important that some of uh, the the countries are enjoying luxuries of the lying and while other people are just dying and that is why what the holy quran it, says justice mm. is absolutely important absolutely uh, it's it's about humanity at the end of the day i mean when we come back to the current crisis that we have in palestine and israel for mm-hmm. example mm-hmm. i mean we've all been following it very closely you have big <coughs> big companies like mcdonald's mm-hmm. saying they're going to give free food, free to, food to, to the idf all right go ahead we don't you've done it but completely ignoring the fact that the water the electricity the medicine the hospitals mm. the even up until just a few days ago mm. international humanitarian aid mm. has been blockaded in palestine what does wow. that mean you're going to have people who are starving there if they survive the bombs mm-hmm. they're not going to survive the hunger hunger absolutely. and if they haven't survived the hunger they're not going to survive the disease disease absolutely. all right so this is the kind of situation that they're living in mm. so when it comes to justice it's mm. about providing it to those and everybody who needs it which of course hasn't been happening up until recently mm. and there's a bigger talk about that but mm. like I said it's not the topic but because it's literally it's what's on our mind yeah. <laughs> it keeps coming back to me absolutely. at the current moment it is about justice mm, absolutely and i think that the holy quran also echoes this principle and it says in chapter 17 verse 26 and give the relative uh, his right and also the poor and the traveler and do not spend wastefully so our ethical duty shared by these organization is to work towards a world where food is distributed justly ensuring that no one goes to bad hungry the promised messiah alayhi salatu wasalam the um, uh, taught you should show love and compassion to all people allah commands us to feed the hungry free those shackled in bondage pay off the arrears of those mired in debt shoulder to shoulder the burden of others and fulfill the rights of sincere love owed to mankind that very pretty much mm. encapsulates the sentiment that we would all like to see mm. established in the modern day world mm-hmm. and like i said in the beginning as well this isn't really mm-hmm. a topic that we should be having to speak about but unfortunately here we are today right now and we are speaking about it but we're going to now go to our next guest who's going to give us a further insight a deeper insight into exactly what's going on and how we can t- tackle the issue mm-hmm. of sustainability when it comes to the global food crisis and we have with us on the line Daphne Owing Chow and a strategic communication spe- specialist um a senior contributor uh, to even Forbes as well assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah peace be upon you how are you doing today I'm wonderful thank you thank you so much for having me and peace be with you as well No no thank you very much for coming on like, like this is a very important topic so we mm. really really appreciate you taking out your time and giving us the insight and letting us know kind of what's happening and also what are some of the possible solutions uh, but before we do come on to the solutions we're trying to as we are going through this show build a bigger picture of what's going on and so far we've learned that there are a lot of different elements behind why we are currently still having to talk about this issue so what challenges do we face currently in achieving food sustainability on a global scale sure i think um this is one of the most challenging problems we face currently i think um we've been hearing over the years where 
perhaps you would have heard um, previously, the head of the World Food Program would have attached a figure to the global food crisis, which he, I think he said something like, um, you know, several hundred billion dollars. But the thing is, it's, hmm. it's actually not quantifiable. It's hmm. not a supply and demand issue. The issue of food security is, is not just about supply and demand. Mm-hmm. It's right. about getting food sustainably and securely and consistently that it's both nutritious and safe to people on basically on a um, on a consistent level and what hmm. we're seeing as issues around this are all man-made issues we have a depletion of natural resources so we have very little, little land mm-hmm. we have um, water scarcity we have population growth mm-hmm. and the result um, we are we are seeing a loss of biodiversity which is then impeding the food security situation even more because you have, um, for example, in terms of crops, you have a loss of pollinators. Mm-hmm. And we have climate change-related issues, which are also man-made issues. And we, we basic, we're basically contributing to the food crisis on our own. This is, this is all a man-made problem. Right. Wow, it's, it's actually quite interesting mm-hmm. that you said that. Mm-hmm. Like I said, even in the beginning of the show, mm-hmm. uh, someone might be have mistaken to, you know, they can't be blamed to have thought that maybe it is a food shortage crisis. But really, if we look at the underlying issues, mm-hmm. Imran, as well, um, there, there, there is a lot that we can do. So, Absolutely. Imran, you, there, there's something that mm-hmm. we wanted to ask. Absolutely. Daphne, you, you talk about uh, the climate change. So what role does climate change play in the global food crisis and how can we address uh, it sustainably? Sure. So with respect to climate change, um, the whole, I think it's very important to um, focus on the fact that the entire world is not being affected by climate change in the same exact way. Mm-hmm. For, uh, certain climate-vulnerable countries, um, countries in Africa, countries in the Caribbean, there are um, countries in Asia, mm-hmm. and um, in, in the Pacific, are dealing such proportionately with the impact of climate change. And what this is causing is a change in weather patterns. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing extreme weather events. You're seeing flooding and drought. In places like, let's say, let me give you an example, in terms of drought, you're seeing places like Ethiopia and Kenya, which are dealing with um, consistent failed rainy seasons. Of course, um, in Pakistan, with extreme floods, um, you're seeing altered growing seasons so that farmers do not know exactly. Um, it's, it's hard to predict what your yields are going to be. Um, the, the climate change is also really the most important one here that I'm going to mention it, is very poor soil. The nutrients in the soil are being uh, okay due to climate change. And that's not only affecting the yields of crops. It's also affecting the nutritional base of the crop. We're also dealing with a nutritional crisis because you'll see that the crops that are being produced are not as nutritious as they used to be. Hmm. Then on an ocean level, we're dealing climate change with something called oceanification, right. which um, is, is disturbing the biodiversity and it's causing extinction of marine species, of coral reefs. And again, wow. we have the loss of biodiversity, which is affecting food supply, and it's also making climate change work because it's the plants in the ocean which are taking the carbon out of the atmosphere, mm-hmm. and our 
our, our terrestrial resources and our marine resources are being hurt, we're having less carbon taken out of the atmosphere. So it's, it's all a vicious cycle. Okay, I mean, I mean, it's interesting that you said that um, because I did read a while ago, <laughs> again, I read the most random stuff, but anyway, I, 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 I was reading something like the tomato that you would have eaten a hundred years ago is probably just about half as nutritious as, as the tomato wow. that you would have eaten today. And, and I thought, wow, that actually resonates a lot because I was, even if, if we consider the fact that, yes, someone's able to get the same amount of food on their plate as someone, you know, it's a couple of decades ago, it would not be the same nutritional value. And then there's a lot mm -hmm. of things that come into play with this. Um, but there's one thing uh, that we did mention in the beginning, and I really want to hone in on, in on this. You did mention it a little bit as well. And I feel like you would be the best person to tell us about this. And this is kind of food waste, which is kind of one of, I, I think, the biggest man-made mm. contributions to the crisis that we currently face. And uh, you know, for me, it was quite shocking uh, to kind of read about the statistics that we face when it comes to food waste and how we could pretty much solve a lot of issues. Um, so what kind of can we do consciously as individuals, as communities to not only be more conscious about this, uh, but also tackle this in a, in a very practical mm -hmm. sort of way? And I think you're, you're, you might have your speaker on. We were having a bit of sound issues, but I hope they're fixed now. But yeah, please go ahead. I'm having some sound issues, but I'm able to together your words. Yeah, same. Yeah, so we should be we should be okay. Thank you. Thank you very much for bearing with us as well. Then. <laughs> so, um, with respect to food waste, you're absolutely right. This is one of the biggest issues that we're facing right now, and it contributes in significant way actually to climate change. Um, mm -hmm. We're wasting approximately 1.3 billion metric tons of food annually, which is 33 percent of all food post-harvest, mm -hmm. and um, it's, it's caused by a number of factors, and there are a, a number of things that we can do. Obviously, there are environmental impacts here. Um, it's contributed to methane, which is a major um, greenhouse gas, and obviously this is causing hunger and food insecurity and an increase in food prices. So obviously, there is a consumer education element. As I mentioned before, mm -hmm. pretty much all of these problems are self-imposed. This is a human problem. We need to educate and we need to advocate around reduction in hmm. waste. And there's a various ways that this can be done. Um, for example, portion control. There are places in the world where um, portions are just too large and a lot of food goes to waste. Definitely in the more developing countries, you'll see a right. lot of this. Hmm. Um, and then from the perspective of technology, um, there's innovative technologies. Again, these would be more applicable to um, more developing countries, but smart refrigerators, apps to track food inventory, etc. Right. And then, to me, the most important is reduced overproduction. We have large mm -hmm. food companies that are overproducing, um, and so much food is going to waste. Absolutely. And then on a, con on a consumer level now, when we buy food, mm -hmm. we can actually look, let's say um, we buy a banana. Mm -hmm. um, don't just throw the peel away, for example. That can be composted. Right. Also, there, there are a variety of uses for banana peels. Um, I wrote an art article once about um, boiling banana peels and, and creating tea out of them, which is really good for a number of ailments. So we wow. can really... Mm -hmm. um, think critically about using um, every part of a plant, for wow, example, okay. when you buy yeah. different foods. 
Um, as I mentioned, composting is really important. Portion control um, and, and just being more conscious about your, your day-to-day habits and, and not putting too much on your plate. Absolutely. That's, yeah, exactly. Just taking it one step at a time and doing the small things that matter. Definitely. Th- thank you very much for coming on to our show today to tell us a little bit more about food sustainability, some of the steps that we can take as well. God bless you. Have a great day. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Daphne doing Chow, who is a strategic communication specialist, telling us a little bit about what the steps that we can take mm-hmm. at home. Banana tea, Imran. <laughs> I'm actually uh, going to go and try that. Is it? I, 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 I might not just do it for the sake of, you know, solving the, the global crisis, uh-huh. but I'm just generally <laughs> curious, what on earth is that? Okay. So this is an interesting thing that I've yeah. seen today. Banana tea, call it chai, whatever you want to yeah. call it. Yeah, I think uh, uh, one thing, one point uh, which uh, she pointed out is the food waste. I think the sheer yeah. amount of food waste globally, yes. you know, it contradicts the ethical principle of responsible resources management and environmental conversation. You know, she spoke mm-hmm. about overproduction, yeah? Yeah. I know that it's probably going to take a long time before mm-hmm. businesses are like, yeah, we need to cut down. Because they're always trying to, you know, they're trying to match mm-hmm. their, their cost- consumer mm-hmm. base and they don't want to fall short on all mm-hmm. of these things. Um, but here in the UK, what I'm beginning to see is, in certain mm-hmm. areas mm-hmm. on a consumer basis where well, we have certain apps that, so technologies allowing us yeah. to, to be better yeah. it's, there's apps that, that are available where mm-hmm. you can go and sign up to these apps online check it out and what they do basically is they're all these apps have got kind of contracts with mm-hmm. big suppliers mm-hmm. uh, for example Greg's Mm-hmm. For example, Starbucks. They okay. actually do. I'm not just making this up. Okay. <laughs> so what these what they will do is that these these big suppliers and mm-hmm. vendors of food, okay. at the end of the day, let's say they've got 10 sandwiches left over or uh-huh. 20 sandwiches or 20 drinks. They will basically, through this app, tell people that, yo, uh, or hey, we've got these drinks left over. It's We're going to sell them really cheap. Okay. We'll sell them at half price or a quarter of the price. Or maybe free. And it basically, yeah, oh, yeah. it incites people uh-huh. to go and get that okay. and pick it up rather than wasting that food. And I think that's a good initiative yeah, to do. Absolutely. And also the same organizations, I can't exactly mm-hmm. name who they would be, mm-hmm. have contracts with food banks and other charities. So mm-hmm. if they've got food left over at the end of the day, and this is normally restaurants, they would actually package that food rather than wasting it. Okay, interesting. And they would ship it off, of course, for free mm-hmm. to these food banks. Mm-hmm. And that's an amazing way, an alter- alternative for people and suppliers and even consumers Mm -hmm. to take part in solving this one step at a time. Okay. So according to the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, approximately one third of all food uh, produced for human consumption is wasted globally every year. And this staggering statistic is a stark reminder uh, of the ethical dilemma of waste. Food waste doesn't only represent a loss of resources, it also has ethical implication in terms of social justice. Now, while millions go hungry, we discard tons of perfectly eatable food. This contradiction raises ethical questions about our responsibilities to those who are less fortunate. Now, beyond its ethical impact on human welfare, food waste also takes a significant toll on the environment. As reported by the United Nations Environment Program, food waste generates an enormous carbon footprint and contributes to climate change. Ethically, this raises concern about our responsibility to future generations and the planet we share. Approximately 8 to 10% of the world's greenhouse uh, uh, gases emissions can be attributed to food that goes to waste or is not consumed. So around 8 to 10% of the world's uh, greenhouse uh, gases 
um, it, it can be contributed to food waste that you know it's a huge number so i think it was just not mm. uh, it's not a um, question of uh, food wasting but also it is uh, the question of uh, that we are just uh, if we're producing a lot more food than we need and it is also basically harming i mean you, you you're absolutely right Ron. Yeah. we've spoken a lot about statistics about practical solutions mm-hmm. what can we learn from history from the time of the prophet muhammad peace be upon peace him from islam the examples of the companions of course they mm-hmm. were also living in a time where for example they had, they went through such tough times of starvation mm-hmm. they would wrap stones around their bellies yeah. to kind of <coughs> free free themselves a little bit from the pangs of hunger do you remember anything that comes to mind when it comes to sharing solving these solutions absolutely i think uh, one incident which comes into my mind is on the battle of uh, ditch mm. when the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him uh, when uh, there was a very sh- food shortage right. at that time and the enemies uh, they were surrounding medina where the holy prophet sallallahu reside and the uh, the enemies were surrounding all uh, from uh, from all four direction and uh, you know uh, a, a man came to the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and you know he uh, he showed that you know because of the hunger i'm uh, i just uh, tied a stone front exactly. uh, to to my belly and the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam lifted his you know uh, shirt and said that uh, i've i've tied two stones to my belly <laughs> wow. so this was the uh, this was the situation but then uh, islam you know when, when islam prevailed uh, the, the companion used to cry that the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam didn't have uh, uh, this soft bread which we eat yeah. nowadays yeah. and uh, you know uh, it, they used to literally cry so that that was the situation in the early days of islam yeah. and of course we're going to talk a little bit about how they dealt with that Mm-hmm. how they helps others and in run in the beginning you said that despite this situation of their own hunger mm-hmm. they would still find some way Absolutely. to help other people Absolutely. and we're going to talk about that but first we're going to go to our next expert guest Jane mm-hmm. Powell who is mm-hmm. a freelance education consultant specializing in engaging the public with food and farming and she's currently busy organizing the Wales Real Food and Farming Conference which is going to be held next week and she's particularly interested in how our values shape the food system and how food can bring people together jane peace be upon you welcome to the drive time show how's your day been so far thank you very much excellent so jane before we actually ask you anything you we we know that you're getting getting ready for the wales real food and farming conference can you tell us what that is and kind of what you're going to be doing yeah um the idea behind the conference is to bring people together from all different aspects of food mm-hmm. so farmers growers nutritionists um, te- uh, um, educators, um, the um, environmentalists, because food touches so many different parts of our lives. And if you bring those people together, then you can start to you can start to create a vision of, of a better way of doing food that will work on all fronts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, what are the current threats to our food system? The current threats to the food system there are so many out there. Um, in, uh, the war in Ukraine, obviously, that shows the fragile our food system is, how much dependent we are on imports. I look at figures that, you know, the UK imports about at least half of the eat, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're very vulnerable to global supply chains, and I mean, we're very vulnerable to war. Um, climate change is, 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 is another big one. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And there's things like, you know, the, the current situation and for farmers, um, a lot of changes to them, Brexit and changes to the support system, um, the cost of living mm-hmm. um, that people find you know, hard to afford uh, food. And then the 
fact that so much food is, is highly processed and right. not particularly healthy. There's that as well. So there's so many things. Yeah, on. I mean. Jane, you we've kind of throughout the show we're kind of trying to understand the background behind why things are happening, uh, some of the effects, whether they're man-made, whether they're environmental, and, and we're kind of coming to you, Jane, to f- kind of figure out what we can do because you right kind rightly mentioned that you know things like processed foods, for example, where we are choosing mm-hmm. and they're obviously way more unhealthier, um, and kind of for people like living here in the UK, it's kind of. It's, it might be for a lot of people difficult to assimilate themselves into a situation where they can imagine themselves uh, w- in, in a place where there is a g- global, you know, sort of a starving situation. So how do we mentally gear ourselves and think, I would say, or gear our mind in the right way to be able to actually practically act in the right way? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I mean, I think we need to rethink our attitude to food. Um quite deeply it, it's we treat it um, as a commodity um, and we you, know, you buy it according to according to the superficial things like you know well tasty it is, i suppose but yeah. not necessarily how healthy it is yeah or, or uh, you know how easy it's easy to cook um you don't really think about you don't think about where it came from particularly mm. uh, so what we really need to do is, is make a new connection with with our food and mm. with and with the natural world okay um, so mm. i think I think, which means simple things really, hands on, like um, cooking from scratch, uh, uh, growing more of our own food, hmm. um, looking into where our food comes from, um, bringing people together so we eat the farmers who grow our food. Ah. Mm-hmm. And, and generally, using food, the power of food to bring people together. That's and actually food, a good it, point. Because it shows us our shared humanity. Yeah. That's you know that that's uh, one of shared humanity not that's um, a a really powerful thing that you've just said that you know we're eating together as Mm. well Mm. it it allows people to first of all i feel like if you eat together you're cooking a certain amount of food and there's a that might be a lower chance of it first of all going to waste (laughs) but you're also inviting and including people Mm. who may be in a situation of difficulty and you don't know about it and that's one great thing as well but one thing jane that i wanted to kind of ask you and i I have completely no idea completely no idea how truthful (laughs) this is um but some people might be of the impression that eating healthier is a is a lot more expensive Hmm. than let's say buying processed food what, what do we do about this kind of mindset I'm really sorry you broke up I think that lost it oh what sorry I was just saying that there might be some people that think that eating healthier is very expensive like it costs oh, a lot yes. so how do we kind? what do you say about that yes I mean that's true and um, it's you know something to really to be fair and you know follow our, our people system that you know, the, the healthiest food can be expensive. And also, they, they, many people can't afford the fuel to cook, mm-hmm. uh, to cook from scratch. You know, we, sh- we should be careful when we see these things. Oh, cook from scratch. Uh, you know, not everybody mm-hmm. can. Um, so, um, I think, I mean, I think we have to learn food in a different way. I mean, growing some of your own food is obviously a good way to get food for free. Right. That's going to be quite expensive, growing your own food, actually. I think we need a lot more community products where mm. people are supporting wow. with their own food. Um, and community meals. I mean, I'm involved with the pay if you feed community meal, which runs twice a week, where the food comes from well, supermarket surplus, also some homegrown food, and the food is cooked from scratch and it's healthy, proper food. That's and, you know, and that, that is served to people, which is what they can afford. So, and meals is another important way to get 
true. It's the people who really need it most, you know, young people, really growing children, they really need good food. And that's a good way that the government can target resources to improve food. Absolutely. Jane, thank you very much for coming on and giving us some further insight into mm-hmm. what we can actually really do. And I, I think this community oh, element... I'm sorry, I can't hear a thing. Oh, I was just saying thank you very much for giving us that insight, that advice, um, about, especially about the fact that we can come I, together I really as a community. Anything. Jane, we're going to bid you farewell. Thank you very much for your advice mm-hmm. and coming on. And we hope Blind. to speak to you again sometime soon. Peace be upon you. Uh, thank you very much for coming on to the show. That was Jane. Unfortunately, we've just had some technical, technical issues, yeah, but Jane has left us with some very golden advice. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I seriously didn't think about this point, is it? Okay. which is the fact that communities coming together and mm-hmm. eating together, mm-hmm. it's a, one of the most powerful ways that we can help mm-hmm. the people around us and reduce food waste. Uh-huh. And I think in run before we had Jane on the line, mm-hmm. we were talking about the Prophet Muhammad, peace, peace be upon him, his yeah, companions, mm-hmm. they were going through a lot of hunger and starvation mm-hmm. and they had pangs in their stomach. Mm-hmm. And you know what they would do? Mm-hmm. They would do exactly this. Oh. They will cook a meal, mm-hmm. and you know what? It's actually written in the records that that meal was supposedly very tiny, yes, very yes. small amount of food. Yes. It could be perhaps, let's say, a lamb mm-hmm. between an army mm-hmm. or a couple of soldiers, yes. and, and presumably they'll be like, "Well, that's not going to st- fill anybody's stomach." Mm-hmm. Or it could be even be in some records we have a bowl of milk, for example. Yes, and yes. there was a couple of people that were supposed to s- survive on this, yeah. but they would still choose to come and have it together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We don't, we don't, it wasn't about, oh, I'm going to have this for myself. Mm-hmm. And they would be hungry themselves. And for some miraculous reason, and this is the beauty of the Prophet's surroundings and Islam, mm-hmm. that they would have that food and there would still be some <laughs> left over. Absolutely. And this is amazing. Yeah. And um, the way that they would cook it, for example, one narration we find that if there was a, a lamb or a piece of meat, they would increase the size of the broth, the portion mm-hmm. of the soup. Mm. so that people could have more basically sure. but it would still retain its nutritional value yeah. so this was one way that they would portion the foods in, an, in a way that's sufficient mm-hmm. and feed a lot of people and invite everyone to mm-hmm. come mm-hmm. whether you've eaten yesterday mm-hmm. or the day before that or a week ago even if you've eaten today it doesn't matter everybody was coming together mm-hmm. and this I think this community element of things is one way we can reduce wasted mm-hmm. we can be more cost efficient mm-hmm. we can help as many people as we need to absolutely I think one of the uh, these uh, which is coming into my mind is the Holy Prophet Sallallahu said that the worst marriage uh, is was walima. It's, it's a sort of you know uh, yes. invitation of marriage is that uh, where the only uh, you know people who are invited is uh, uh, rich people and the yes. poor people are not invited and they're they're basically excluded. Yes, and, and I think you find this theme. Mm-hmm. Uh, throughout the teachings of Islam Mm -hmm. that it's all about including those people who are not well off in in fact Mm -hmm. there's a chapter of the Quran Surah Mm Al-Ma'un that says Mm -hmm. that uh, have you seen that person or God is saying should I tell you about that person Mm -hmm. who rejects faith who Mm -hmm. lies about that he is a faithful person Mm -hmm. Should I tell you about that person who is mm. dishonest when he says that he is a believer? Mm-hmm. Who is that person? Is it a person who just doesn't pray? Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. that's not what that chapter says. Is it a person who cheats or lies or steals? That's not what that chapter says. Mm. It says it is that person who rejects and pushes away the orphans and the hungry people. That is a person who lies about his faith. Beautiful. I think if you if you look towards the theme of Islam, the theme of Islam is like serving your creator and serving the uh, his creation and it doesn't really you know uh, it, it is it can be uh, just feeding them helping them in whatever means you are you have 
available uh, if you have for example uh, some sort of degree or you have some sort of uh, you know um, thing you can teach them if you have some sort of money you can give to them absolutely so I think this is the theme of islam all around this if, is it hmm. i mean the, the, that same chapter carries on to say hmm. nor does he advocate for feeding the poor Huh. And then powerfully that chapter says hmm. hmm. that, And hmm. it continues to say that Then woe hmm. and, and ruin hmm. to those people who pr- offer their prayers hmm. But they do it just to show off But at the same time they don't feed hmm. people And at the same time they neglect their orphans hmm. What kind of person is this who just prays and doesn't offer hmm. their duties to their mankind hmm. This is a theme that you will consistently find in hmm. Islam Absolutely I think one of the verses which I was uh, I find very interesting for example on the on the occasion of Hajj uh, at the end of the and uh, and the uh, at the end of the Hajj you have to shave your head okay. and Allah the Almighty says if you cannot for some reason what do you do then? then you have to feed some poor people you like know, six, seven. there so are actually a hmm. lot of places in the Quran hmm. like this hmm. where you a lot of sins in the Quran for example mm. a lot of expiations for punishments mm. and sins the, the, the punishment isn't oh go and spend a week in, in jail yeah. <laughs> it's actually helping people helping it's people. either feed them mm. or teach someone how to read and write mm. and it's practical things which whereby someone who's done something wrong mm. or made a mistake is actively doing something positive mm. why? first mm. of all it's going to help people mm-hmm. but second of all it's going to remind mm. that person how number one good it feels to do something mm. good mm. and that actually deep down they are a good person and they just need to find themselves <coughs> again so this is again something that I really find quite mm-hmm. captivating mm-hmm. about the way that Islam aims to change people mm-hmm. practically in a positive way. Absolutely. Uh, so we can all take this on board and wherever we find an opportunity now I'm just saying this for everybody and uh, me included. Mm-hmm. We don't want to be those people who are guilty of being a good worshipper, mm-hmm. uh, someone who's devout to their faith, but we lose out on that completely mm-hmm. by walking past someone on the street who said, can, I, can you buy me a meal? And uh, you just said, nah, hmm. forget it. Hmm. Or I haven't got my cash. Do whatever you can for that person when you can. Why? Because those opportunities, opportunities actually at the moment aren't that common. So when they do come to you yeah. and you find them, don't let them go. Help that person where you can, mm-hmm. when you can, even if you have to go out of your way. Mm-hmm. I just want to quickly uh, narrate one of the incident uh, which His Holiness narrated in one of his uh, Friday sermon. He said that um, uh, there's a uh, once he mentioned that there's a social media post going on where a young child requesting medication mm. for a doctor to cure their hunger, and His Holiness said that whether the social media post is true or not, it is certainly true that children around the world are suffering from severe hunger. However, those madly seeking wars do not care at all about the suffering of innocent children who are being deprived of their parents and are living a life of misery. In such a state, those of us able to fulfill, uh, those of uh, us able to fill our stomachs and eat well on Eid, we should increase in our realization of suffering of the others. I think this is the message he gives us that you know when we have, uh, whenever we have. Uh, on the occasion of happiness we should include in in the days of our happiness and on in normal days as well uh, to the people who are less fortunate as, uh, than us who are not have the basic necessities of life and they don't know that whether they're going to have a next meal uh, or not so i think we should uh, and this is the this is this is the form of worship of uh, uh, this is another form of worship of uh, allah taala
Absolutely. Mm. Imran, you've, you've said it quite rightly there and you mentioned the statement of His Holiness. This is ultimately what it is. We're going to come back after a break. But right now, I just want to remind everybody, mm-hmm. uh, yes, we were talking about global hunger, global crises. This is extended right now in the world to many other crises which we are facing at the moment. Mm-hmm. Our brothers and our sisters all over the world and especially the crisis that is now happening currently in Palestine with the conflict. There, I wouldn't even call it a conflict. Conflict is two-sided mm-hmm. to some degree where right now, as His Holiness said, that although there is some kind of injustices happening from organizations like Hamas, mm-hmm. we must never forget uh, that the overall o- occupier which has been there for a while is mm-hmm. the Israel force. Right. And the injustices that are happening there, we must speak out against it and we must pray for them this is the greatest power that Muslims have yes, Prophet exactly. Muhammad peace be upon him is peace reported to have said that when you see an injustice there are three things that you can do about it mm-hmm. either you can stop it with your hand mm-hmm. if you are allowed to and you have the power to do it if mm-hmm. you cannot do that then you must speak up with your voice mm-hmm. and this is something that we can do mm-hmm. and even if you cannot do that then you must at least say in your heart that this mm-hmm. is wrong but we mm-hmm. are at least in a position right now Hmm. to be able to speak up against injustice wherever we see it and try to help people where we can. Good. So with that, this is just a reminder to everyone out there to keep doing what you can. As Whatever you can do little, you are needed, you are worthy hmm. and you are important. We're going to take a break now for the news. We're going to be back after the news to talk about what, Imran? So we're going to talk about Islam and modern science and uh, what Islam says about modern science and where are the modern Muslim scientists. After the news. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Had a bit of a mic mic shake there. Assalamu alaikum (laughs) warahmatullah, peace be upon you. Welcome to the Drive Time Show. We are currently live. The mic shake has stopped now. You can call us in at 0208-687-7878 or tweet to us. Uh, The Voice of Oh, no, not the voice. Voice of Islam UK. <laughs> and we are currently now going to be speaking about Imran. So we're talking, we're going to talk about Islam and modern science and what Quran says and uh, about the modern science or uh, it prophesies about the modern science. And um, where are the Muslim scientists right now? We find that there were um, very good Muslim scientists in the in the you know golden age of Islam. But what are the causes of uh, uh, that we in in this day and age we don't really find many Muslim scientists. It is actually a bit of a paradox because what we see mm-hmm. is that the Quran talks about science. It's not a book of science, mm-hmm. but the Quran says Allah Almighty in the Quran, which mm-hmm. is the book of the Muslims, revealed by God to the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him. Mm-hmm. We believe it as Muslims to be a divine book. Right. Therefore, everything inside it needs to be something which is unfathomable by humans. It's mm-hmm. something that God has revealed. And what the Quran says is, mm-hmm. That there is not a single hidden truth in the heavens or the earth, except that it is recorded in this manifest book. Yes. So the Quran makes a claim. Mm-hmm. that the secrets of the heavens and the universe mm-hmm. are recorded in the Quran. Mm. And that's where it makes some sort of a claim to scientific knowledge. Okay. And it's not an empty claim, Imran, mm, as we will explore today. Absolutely. There are a lot of people that when they begin to explore, explore Islam, mm-hmm. you know, not everybody explores Islam or, or tries to find their truth through the same lens or the, mm-hmm. through, or the, through the same angle. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people that want to see 
that modern science mm-hmm. and modern day research coincides with the religious text that they are trying to look into mm-hmm. because in most people's minds the law of god and the nature of god and the word of god mm-hmm. must equally coincide if indeed it is to, to, to be the truth absolutely so if there is something which we find to be truthful mm-hmm. then in a logical person's mind god should already know that he shouldn't yeah. contradict it yeah. so we will today see if the quran is in line with that absolutely so if if we look in the past Uh, in pa- in the past islam and muslims were always at the forefront of sciences and maths for example the father of algebra al khwarizmi uh, a 9th century persian mathematician and astronomer he popularized the um, you know uh, contemporary hindu arabic numbering system in which the position of a digit uh, in a number influences the value of the number and he demonstrated how to solve quadratic equation by uh, completing the squares in 2016 an article published by national geographic explored the topic of advancement in medicine through early islamic science now this piece highlighted the significant contribution made by early muslim scientists particularly in the field of medicine now it also recognized the outstanding achievements of scholars like ibn sina Additionally, the article depicted the city of Cordoba, uh, uh, situated in the Muslim world, as a vibrant hub of culture and, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> and a leading center for scholarly research and exploration in Europe during that era. However, in the recent years, Islam has not been, uh, you know, uh, valued. Um, or you know eradicated or acute accredited and valued in science as it has been in the past but come uh, uh, if 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 we look towards the holy quran um, the holy quran is uh, it continuously uh, you know it continuously says yeah. to, to seek knowledge it does for example uh, in in allah the almighty says that you know it taught us the prayer rabbi zidni ilma in hmm. oh my lord hmm. increase us in knowledge and it also says that you know yarfahu allahu alladhina amanu minkum wal ladhina utul ilma darajatin wallahu bima ta'maluna khabirat allah will increase those who believe from among you and those to whom knowledge is given to decrease of rank it is it is mm-hmm. like that in fact the, in the third chapter of the quran also mm-hmm. says that there are those people when they're standing up Mm-hmm. They're laying prostrate on their sides. Mm-hmm. They ponder upon this creation, this universe, wow. and they say, "Ma khalaqta hada batilan." That you didn't, cre- oh God, you didn't create this for no reason. No reason. And they they really try to research and they try mm-hmm. to look into this to the universe and and space and the stars to try and see mm-hmm. how meticulous this universe is. This is actually something which God has illustrated in in the Quran as being mm-hmm. the characteristics mm-hmm. of a person that He is pleased with. And we we you mentioned Al Khawarizmi mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. others like. this right and you know we don't even that's okay that's centuries later mm-hmm. and we will come to that mm-hmm. but we can even begin mm-hmm. with 1500 years ago mm-hmm. where the prophet muhammad peace be upon him didn't actually have the, the same tools right. that al khawarizmi had right. and the same research and the same research he had nothing he had none of that mm-hmm. yet the quran which was revealed to him makes some very profound statements Absolutely. and i think that we should begin with that mm-hmm. 
And there are probably so many that we cannot go through them mm, in mm, this show. Absolutely. But we will start with one of them. Mm-hmm. Because I started with the verse that says that we po- a Muslim should ponder over the, the space and the universe. We should probably begin there. Right, right. Although there's, may, there's way more than that. Yeah, even. absolutely. But the Quran first and foremost says, Awalam kafaru. That do not the disbelievers see. Mm-hmm. That the heavens and the earth were like a closed up mass. Mm-hmm. Then we ripped them asunder. Mm-hmm. Then we created from water everything living. Beautiful. Will they still not then believe? Mm-hmm. This is God is saying at the end. Will they still not then believe? Mm-hmm. Indicating that what God has just said mm-hmm. is a proof. Of his truthfulness Beautiful Because what is it? What is this verse talking about? Hmm. Something It's talking about something, something That when it was revealed to Prophet Muhammad Peace be upon him And the companions The companions probably had absolutely no idea What this could possibly hmm. be talking about In the way that we know it today hmm. And this is, of course is talking about the fundamental theory hmm. Of the creation of the universe The Big Bang, Big Bang Which talks about The hydrogen nitrogen atoms Being in a closed up mass hmm. And Obviously, a, a, a sort of black hole mm. sort of dimension keeping them closed up because of gravity and then suddenly an explosion happening and then there being the universe mm. today. And the, the verse doesn't stop there because that's what it talks about. Well, for, mm. You know, for, what, um, we ripped the heavens asunder. Mm. And, then, mm. and then after the universe was created, God says that we created life from water. And microbiologists now have determined mm. that the very first mi- microbiorganisms Today, uh-huh. we're created from water, from water itself, wow. not, from, not on land, not on wow. earth. Wow. And this is something that God has written as proof saying that you, this is what I'm saying to you mm. now when there is no scientific mm. anything. There, is, there is no NASA. Yeah. So will you not then believe that this is Beautiful. from God? And the interesting thing about this verse is mm-hmm. it starts off with what? <laughs> Did the disbelievers not see this? Mm. And mm. there is also a minute point in this as well. Mm. That it was never the Muslims that discovered the Big Bang. Beautiful. It was those that did not Disbeliever, believe. Yeah. And in mm-hmm. a way, yes, this is a prophecy to be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. But this is the sad reality now. Mm. Where? Where are you? Mm. Where are the Muslim researchers mm. that are now absent? That God is foretelling mm-hmm. that there will come a time that for some reason, people who are not Muslim, Muslim. will start discovering the very things mm. that God had laid out for Muslims <laughs> in the Holy Quran from day one. Yeah, and that's a very unfortunate situation. Mm. I think you mentioned the, the, the later part of the word that uh, God Almighty created every living thing with the water. Mm. And I was looking, uh, I was, uh, was looking uh, something on this verse, and uh, it says that uh, the the cells, which are the basic, you know, uh, basic block of of everything, yes, is is based seventy percent on water. Oh, wow. and I mean our bodies mm, yes our body 70% is based on water so uh, the, the very uh, you know the very uh, basic of everything is based on water cells. and this verse again mm-hmm. fundamentally says this that mm-hmm. water is the fundamental element for life mm-hmm. and the re- no, it's not an element but mm-hmm. why this is you can survive one mm-hmm. month without food mm-hmm. you can only survive two weeks without mm-hmm. water mm-hmm. and this is the reality of life and mm-hmm. um, obviously this is just one miracle mm-hmm. scientific truth that we find in the Quran Absolutely. we find so many more mm-hmm. we find equally the Quran talks about the beginning of the universe. Mm. It talks about the expansion as well, where we, which continues from the Big Bang, the theory that the universe is currently expanding. God has said it in the Quran. Mm-hmm. That we have created this universe and surely we are still expanding it. Expanding, yeah. And then it also talks about how the universe will end. Wow. Mm. This is something which hasn't even happened yet. Mm-hmm. Yet it's there. Mm. 
يوم نطوي السماء كطي السجل للكتب كما بدأنا أول مرة نعيده وعدا علينا إنا كنا فاعلين That God Almighty in the Quran revealed to the Prophet Muhammad 1500 years ago that that day will come Mm-hmm. When we will roll up the heavens and the earth mm-hmm. like the rolling up of the scrolls of a scribe. Mm-hmm. Have you seen have you, you must have anybody seen a scroll? It's mm-hmm. a piece of parchment that has basically been rolled up at the end right. at both ends mm-hmm. and you can roll it back in. Mm-hmm. That's basically what a scroll mm-hmm. is. Surely, yeah. Okay? And God says that we will surely return the creation to the position where we began it. Mm-hmm. We will surely return it to the way mm-hmm. we started the universe. Mm-hmm. And then We will surely do this. We will surely do. God says twice, we hmm. will surely do this. Hmm. Okay. Hmm. The current theory for the way that NASA believes the universe will end is called the Big hmm. Crunch. Mm-hmm. The Big Crunch persists of the following theory. Okay. That the universe is currently expanding mm-hmm. because of what? The initial explosion. The force of the explosion, just like any explosion, expands. Mm-hmm. Outward, outward, outwards until its energy dies out. Okay. When the energy of this expansion will die out, gravity would will again take its hold on the universe mm-hmm. and it will pull the entire universe back in on itself mm-hmm. and where will it go into it keep going back keep going back and mm-hmm. it will return back into what we now know as a white hole mm-hmm. the same thing that the big bang began with mm-hmm. so what we see here is that the, when if you look at the image of the big crunch mm-hmm. it, it literally theorizes universe as a carpet And mm. when the big crunch happens, it rolls mm. back in again. Mm. And where does it go? Back into a black hole, white hole, dwarf hole. Mm-hmm. The Quran th- that reminds mentioned me, that. That reminds me another verse of the Holy Quran in which he says that uh, that we created the thing and then we repeat again and again. Um, this uh, actually, this, mm. th- this thing that you just mentioned right now, mm-hmm. is also another theory mm-hmm. of scientists, uh, which has actually been reiterated by uh, Hazrat Mr. Tahir Ahmed, who is mm-hmm. the fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Okay. The theory of entropy. Okay. The theory that when a universe begins, it begins with a black hole. Mm-hmm. It expands, it lives, and then it it basically collapses on itself, which is the big crunch, mm-hmm. and then it implodes and turns into a white hole. Mm-hmm. And then... At a certain point, it will explode again. again. The theory is that this may not be the first mm. universe and this may not be the last one. And it okay. may keep happening. And this process of stopping and starting is called entropy. Again, it's something that you've actually just mentioned right now, mm. which is mm. also mentioned in the Quran. Interesting. I'm telling you, mm. the universe, science, there is a lot in the Quran which pe- perhaps people have not really heard mm-hmm. of. We can talk about even more right now. And I think we'll do one more mm. on science. Mm. We can go into many more truths of science. And then we should probably go mm. into the bigger question. Mm. What on earth are we doing? <laughs> But the thing is this, again, mm. something which has again been discovered by scientists who are not mm. Muslim. Mm. Pulsar neutron stars. Okay. This is a chapter of the Quran in the last part, which most even children may have recited. Mm-hmm. But, but do they actually know exactly what this is talking about? Mm-hmm. By the heavens mm-hmm. and the one that knocks. Okay. What do you mean, the one that knocks? knocks yeah. This is what the Quran says, At-tariq, the one that knocks. knocks. Mm-hmm. And God explains, At-tariq, the one that knocks, is what in the next verse? An-najm al-thaqib. A piercing star. Mm-hmm. A piercing star. Oh. Now, when the commentators read this verse, mm-hmm. Ibn Taymiyyah, mm-hmm. Ibn Kathir, mm-hmm. yes, Ibn Abbas radiallahu an, mm-hmm. what did they say? Mm-hmm. This is piercing in its brightness. Okay. It's very bright, so therefore it's piercing. Mm-hmm. Wallahu alam. <laughs> Why did they say this? Because, of course, they could never have comprehended what we know now, uh-huh. which is through the modern advancements of science. Listen to this. Mm-hmm. That by the heavens God takes an oath That in the heavens there is A star 
which number one is piercing mm-hmm. and number two it knocks mm-hmm. and we can today factuate this <coughs> that one of the brightest stars in the universe is mm-hmm. the pulsar neutron star which is first of all two fundamental characteristics that it contains number one mm-hmm. if you put it under a sonic wave mm-hmm. and you hear the star it sounds like a knocking sound that's how it sounds nice and they mm-hmm. literally explain it that the way, way we will explain the star is that it has a knocking sound mm-hmm. okay that's static <laughs> but how is it a Najm al mm-hmm. piercing star is mm-hmm. it because of its brightness maybe mm-hmm. but there's one more thing mm-hmm. this is the most dense star that you can get okay it's so dense that it is able to pierce a hole into dark matter. Wow. Mm-hmm. Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, mm-hmm. 1500 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, you just have to sit there and think about this. <laughs> I'm just going to give another verse of the Holy Quran, which, uh, which talks about the human immorality. So before science could explain the origin of life, 1400 years ago, the Holy Quran had already explained in Surah Al-Mu'minin, the human embryology. You know, Allah the Almighty says in chapter 23, verse 13 to 15, Verily, we created man from an extract of clay. Then we placed him as a drop of sperm in a safe depository. Then we fashioned mm. the sperm into a clot. Then we fashioned the clot into a shapeless limb. Then we fashioned bones out of this shapeless limb. Then we clothe the bones with flesh then we developed it into another creation so blessed be Allah the best of creator now regarding this verse uh, you know uh, professor Emirates leads Lemo who is the one of the uh, you know one of one of the uh, world's most well-known scientists in the fields of anatomy and emirology he said that it is clear to me that these statements must have come to Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, from God. Because the almost all of this knowledge was not discovered until many centuries later. You know, I've actually hmm. heard this interview mm-hmm. in real time. Okay. This was recorded. Okay. And I, I remember seeing his face. Because this is a radio show, you can't see his face. Uh-huh. Genuinely surprised, genuinely amazed okay. at how this could be possible. Because the, the verses that you've mentioned, hmm. which are in the beginning of chapter, part 18, cha- hmm. ch- chapter Al-Muflihun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it talks about so many crazy things, I would say. Mm-hmm. Because it talks about embryology mm-hmm. in a way, again, that was not known at that time. If we talk about the words in the in the verse, which are al-alaqa, wal mudga, which talk about describing the first primary stages of embryology mm-hmm. of the of the newborn embryo, as uh, first of all alaqa, as mm-hmm. something which has been um, parasitical shape, mm-hmm. like a, like a worm shape, mm-hmm. and a mudga, something that's been chewed up, uh, something that's been bitten between the teeth. Mm-hmm. This is al mudga. And this individual, actually, when he gave his speech, okay. was putting up images of, of, the, of the embryos at the embryonic development stage of 20 weeks and 21 weeks, etc. Okay. And he showed mm-hmm. an embryo, which looks, if you're able to see it and compare them side by side, looks like for like, like a parasite, mm-hmm. like a small worm or like a parasite shape, curvy with a tail. This wow. is it. This wow. is what it looks like. Yeah, yeah. And what else? It's mm-hmm. spinal um, cord because mm-hmm. it is not yet fully developed. It's thin and it's it's embedded on the back. Mm-hmm. Looks like someone's bitten it with their teeth. Al alaqa wal mudra. And this is precisely exactly what the Quran is mentioning here as well. Mm-hmm. And like I said, for people who want to start their journey of finding the truth about the Quran, about the, about Islam, and they have this taste for is for science and Islam, well, mm-hmm. you need to look no further than the Quran, mm-hmm. because this is where all of the developments are being found. I mentioned I think in the previous hour 
that um, there are researches and studies happening into cancer as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is a verse in the Quran that mm-hmm. says that fihi shifa'un an nas that mm-hmm. honey is a cure for mankind. Mm-hmm. And we're going to look into that as well. We're going to come back to this. But at the moment, we do have one of our guests mm-hmm. callers on the line, who is Salim Ali, who is a researcher and writes for the Forbes magazine. Assalamu alaikum. <coughs> Peace be upon you. Welcome to the Drive Time Show. Wa alaikum assalam. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming on to our show today. We're discussing, of course, modern science, Islam, its compatibility and its relevance. And we've just actually seen your recent Forbes article on the Nobel Prizes to be quite intriguing. And we know we've also kind of spoken in this show that even though there is a lot that Islam has to offer on, on the modern front, perhaps the representation, we need to think about it and talk about it more. Mm-hmm. So what inspired you to actually delve into this particular subject matter? Well, uh, you know, if you look at the statistics, the number of uh, Nobel Prize winners in the sciences who come from a Muslim background is very small. Uh, there are only right. four. Okay. Uh, and uh, and uh, many of them actually don't even identify very directly as being Muslim. Okay. So uh, it's, uh, it's a concern. And I wanted to highlight and ask the question, why is that the case? Okay. And my... And my feeling is that it's because we have not really invested in science education in the Muslim world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Salim, if we look at the golden age of Islam, there's a lot of scientists, you know, Khawarzmi, Ibn Sina, Ibn Rushd, you know, you name it. Yes. Now, what mm-hmm. what happened, what went, what went wrong that suddenly the golden age of Islam, the Muslim lost their interest in science can you just talk about this that why are yes, Muslims yeah. not you know in the field of sciences well I think we need to first of all confront the reality that there has always been a tension in mm-hmm. Islamic history between uh, scientific rational thought and orthodox absolutist theology uh, I think there is within Islam and uh, there is accommodation for science but there's been this tension. So if you go back to, you know, a lot of these great scientists in Islamic tradition, many of them came from Andalusia in um, sort of the golden age of Iberian Islam, which we call it in Spain. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but even at that period, these people were constantly being challenged by uh, the uh, the more extreme elements. And uh, mm-hmm. I the example, the article of the, this um, Medina to Zahra, which was a city near Cordoba that was a center of learning in, in that period. And this city was destroyed not by some non-Muslim invaders, but by fundamentalist Muslims who were opposed to the kind of progressive uh, science-based uh, work that was being done there. So, you know, this has been a tension. And even even the Umayyads who came to Spain, they were kicked out of Iraq by the Abbasids who, you know, brought in. So there, this tension has been always been there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have to recognize and then say, look, we need to have that, that more positive aspect of scientific thought brought back. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Now, um in the in the you know in the perception of being a muslim is still regarded as conductory you know contradictory within the uh, scientific community thus uh, potentially leading to a shortage of uh, repre- representation do you think that no i mean i think you know there may be some perception that there's discrimination against muslims when it comes to recruitment of scientists and that that may well be the case to some degree but i think it's a bigger supply side problem Mm-hmm. We do not have as many 
Muslims who are going into science from a critical science perspective. Like, for example, we have a lot of Muslim doctors. Mm -hmm. When you're in the UK, we have probably over-representation of doctors of Muslim origin (laughs) compared to other states. But these doctors, I wouldn't call them scientists. You know, they're practitioners, they're Mm. technicians who work on their taught a certain skill. They don't do research. Most Mm. of them are not interested in discovering new medical breakthroughs. They go and they want to make a good living and they do Mm. their work, which is great. But they're not scientists in the traditional sense of critical inquiry. which which supports that mm-hmm. and we have that among our jewish brethren who who support that kind of critical thinking <coughs> around science and that's mm-hmm. why you have you know about one third of the nobel laureates in the sciences are of jewish origin because they have really invested in that from a, a fundamental perspective in terms of supporting science education and in the culture of that even though they're much smaller demographic than muslims in the world mm-hmm. No, I absolutely kind of. I think I agree with you here, because th- there is this kind of perception. I, we, I mean, Imran, mm-hmm. you mentioned the Andalusian scholars, yeah. and even interestingly, at that time, a lot of them were actually held welded as heretics mm-hmm. of their time. Mm-hmm. Well, now we look at them back and we're like, yeah. hold on a minute, they had a point. Yeah. Uh, so it, it is. There is this somewhat of a culture, and I, we have to address this. He's, you're absolutely right. Um, and I don't know exactly what we need to do because in Rome for the past hour we've kind of been banging on <laughs> about exactly how much importance Islam actually does give and I, I know we can't speak for other communities mm. but uh, at least uh, in where we stand as the Ahmadiyya community mm. we have organizations like AMRA mm. where, where you know people are encouraged to go into fields of research mm-hmm. I know that there are some Muslim countries that are now beginning to invest in research although like we've just mentioned <coughs> it's not as crazy as we would want it to be mm-hmm. but Mr. Salim um, we know <coughs> that there is that tension. Like we mentioned the Andalusians who were somewhat surrounded as heretics. There are inter-Muslim sort of struggles as well, talking about each other, Shias, Muslim, Ahmadis, who is a Muslim, who is not a Muslim, recognizing people. Do you think all of this has a role to play as well in people reaching uh, the positions which we're trying to get them to be in? Yeah, I mean, I think there needs to be, of course, a bigger conversation about pluralism in Islamic tradition. Mm -hmm. And that's where your point comes in, whether, you know, it is Shia, Sunni, Ahmadiyya, other uh, um, uh, denominations. Uh, And, uh, you know, there's reluctance to do that. uh, and it's unfortunate that many uh, people are persecuted like that and not acknowledged. Certainly was the case with Dr. Abdul Salam and yeah. in, uh, who won a Nobel Prize in physics uh, and was of the Ahmadiyya community. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but also, you know, I think there is the Ahmadiyya community also capitalizes on that just to beat up the other Muslims. And that's also not fair because, for example, mm-hmm. in Pakistan, he, he, he is acknowledged in many ways. Like, he, there's a whole center in his honor at government college in Lahore. Mm-hmm. But that is always played down. And there's always this constant self-pity. So I think, and that causes great grievance. So I think all sides mm-hmm. have to come together and say, look, we need to work together and improve science education within Islam and not go into, uh, you know, so, yeah. uh, tendential think these, discussions on persecution. Mm, yeah. So you think these little semantics, which are basically the ultimate objective is for people to actually come together. First of all, recognize obviously what we already have and just be the best at doing that. But then also moving forward as well, mm. which is working together. And I think this is one thing 
that if we can put our differences aside and work together in these fields, we can actually achieve a lot more. But also fundamentally actually acknowledging this, as you mentioned before, there might be a lot of doctors. How many people are actually going into research? And like I said, um, we do have AMRA in our community, again, which was fundamentally based off of in the first place mm. of trying to achieve the same kinds of ranks as as other Nobel laureates such as Abdul Salam for example and others as well so it is that kind of conscious approach that we need to as Muslims take of course but do you do you personally in, within what we've just discussed actually realistically anticipate the feasibility of collaborations between scientists from Muslim countries in the near future yes I think I mean organizations like ISESCO the International Scientific Education and Cultural Organization for Muslims it is the Islamic Scientific Educational and Cultural Organization which is based in Morocco uh, I think that could be further empowered it could have more uh, human capital uh, built into it in terms of bringing the best and brightest young scientists from the Muslim world mm-hmm. engaged through that so I think it's possible it will require uh, some very deliberate action on the part of many of these countries, Muslim countries who have resources, and there are many, in, especially in the Gulf, who could really move this forward. In Saudi Arabia, we have the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, which has a $20 billion endowment. This hmm. is one of the largest endowments of a research university. Um, but what they have done is followed is they've brought in a lot of non-Muslim scientists for you know, short visiting positions, uh, and they're not really as invested in trying to develop capacity of the indigenous scholars to further, uh, you know, and it's more, kind of becomes more of a prestige kind of project. And so I think there we have the resources, we have institutions, they just need to be channeled in a better way mm-hmm. uh, so that we can get to that point. Right. So, Zaleem, uh, many Muslim, you know, scientists tend to conduct their research in uh, Western countries. Do you think that the shortages of uh, shortage of resources and funding is a significant reason behind the lag in Nobel Prize for Muslim communities countries? Well, as I, as I suggest, we do have now the resources. We have, especially in the Gulf, enormous resources. Uh, King Abdullah mm-hmm. University of Science and Technology Absolutely. is one example. Qatar has the education city. They have brought in major international universities there. Mm. In Abu Dhabi, New York University has opened a big campus, NYU Abu Dhabi. These are all through resources from Muslim countries, which right. have been given to them. Mm-hmm. Now, this is an opportunity. Hmm. I, we should collaborate certainly with non-Muslim scholars. Science has no religion per yeah. se in terms of its, uh, you know, uh, human capital. But at the same time, if you want to build capacity in a particular marginalized community, then you need to be having affirmative action for them. So these institutions are there. They should have specified programs for improving uh, scientific output in Muslim countries so that they can then be brought for higher learning there. And, you know, I think that's how we should work together on it. The, the resources now are there. I, uh, before, the, I would say in the last 30 years, there are institutions and resources within Muslim countries which could move this forward. Absolutely, Salim. I absolutely appreciate your approach, your perspective on the topic. We certainly are now in a position where we can actually inshallah do this as Muslims if we come together and we work together with everybody thank you very much Salim for coming on to our show also writing your article guys you can go and check it out as well on Forbes and we'll send a link out on socials as well after this for that Assalamu alaikum wa and peace be upon you have a great day
Thank you very much. That was Salim Ali, who is a researcher and writes for The Four magazine. And he had a recent article on Nobel Prizes, which we found actually quite intriguing. Mm. You can go and check that out as well as um, take a look at it in your own time. Mm. And of course, uh, Salim's one of his underlying messages was that we do, unfortunately, mm-hmm. right now, not have that much attention towards research in the Muslim mm-hmm. community as we would expect or as we would like, mm-hmm. especially considering <laughs> the, 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 the fundamental gold that we mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. in the Quran as well. And uh, His Holiness, mm-hmm. Hazim Mr. Ahmad, uh, may Allah strengthen his hand has also actually spoken about this issue that we need to see more people Absolutely. coming up we've had Abdul Salam Dr. Mm. Abdul Salam we had him mm. he was a Nobel laureate but mm. that was a while ago now we need people to mm. step up mm-hmm. and we're going to take a listen to His Holiness's words right now the recent intellectual state of much of the Muslim world has been lamentable over time as Muslim moved away from God Almighty and the qualities associated with a believer diminished rapidly amongst them. The Muslims who had previously led the world in science and research gradually moved to an age of intellectual ignorance that persists to this day. Instead of continuing to be the leaders of innovation, and discovery. The period of Muslim academic enlightenment drew to an end and the Muslims relied on the discoveries and modern uh, technologies made by others. Instead of being those who gave to the world, the Muslims became those who only took. As a result, where the world recognizes the outstanding historic contribution of Muslims to science and learning. It considers the intellectual status of the modern-day Muslim world to be woeful. The truth is that, generally speaking, the Muslim world has lost its passion for education and pushing the boundaries of human knowledge. Muslim nations have become immersed in the luxuries and comforts of the world. And so they no longer have the the drive or motivation to toil in the pursuit of knowledge or to reflect upon the universe. The the (coughs) failure of the contemporary Muslim world to excel in science and learning has been discussed by Hillel of a research fellow at the Clement Center for uh, National Security in the United States uh, in an article titled Why the Arab World Turned Away from Science. He describes how Muslims have gone from leading the world in science and the development of human civilization to a state where their contribution uh, contributions are now mocked amongst the academic community. He writes that until around the year 1600, nothing in Europe could hold a cradle to the intellectual advancement made by Muslim scientists and scholars. Furthermore, he notes how many scientific and mathematical terms such as algebra 
algorithm, alchemy and alkali derive from Arabic and reflect Islam's contribution to the world. Yet he goes on to paint a modern day picture of science in the Muslim world that is completely at odds with its illustrious past. For example, he notes that there have only ever been that there have only ever been two scientists from Muslim countries who have won the Nobel Prize. Despite the fact there are approximately 1.6 billion Muslims in the world. Another stark statistic he presents is that 46 Muslim countries combined contributed just 1% of the world's scientific literature. In a similar vein, he states that in 1989, the United States published over 10,000 scientific papers that were frequently cited, whilst in the entire Arab world, just four commonly cited papers were published in the same period. He also notes how between 1980 and 2000, just one country, South Korea, granted over 16,000 intellectual patents, whilst nine Arab countries, including Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE, granted a combined total of just 370. The article also quotes the Nobel laureate Professor Steven Weinberg speaking about the dearth of scientific material originating from Muslim countries. Professor Weinberg states, though there are talented scientists of Muslim origin working productively in the West for 40 years, I have not seen a single paper by a physicist or astronomer working in a Muslim country that was worth reading. Thus, in intellectual and scientific terms, Muslims and the Islamic nations have gone from leading the world to being treated with scorn and derision. At this time of intellectual ignorance amongst the Islamic world, it is the great challenge for Ahmadi Muslim scientists and researchers to revive the honor and dignity of Islam in the global academic arena. Indeed, it should be your ambition to take up the glorious mantle of enlightenment adorned by the great Muslim scholars and inventors of the Middle Ages. That was His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmed. May Allah strengthen his hand, who is the fifth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. And you guys have heard it right there. The emphasis, and I thought, think sort of the sort of sad touches of why where we see the Muslim state right now where we could and should have had so many Muslim researchers out there we don't have as many as we should have had and we've discussed in, in, the, in the past hour of the show how much there is still to discover in the Quran how much we already have discovered and how much more there is still to discover as the claim of the Quran puts it that there is not a single hidden truth about the heavens and the earth except what it is recorded in this book of the Quran so we must use our intellect and our research abilities to make this a truth and find everything that we can and i think we had with us mr salim previously talked about you know 
the lack of Muslim representation. We mentioned Dr. Abdul Salam, the Andalusian scholars, Al Khawarizmi as well, Ibn Sina, others as well, who at the moment in their past have at times been branded as heretics. And the first thing that we must do before we look to what we need to do next is we must first acknowledge our past. We must acknowledge who we are, who our forefathers have been, and what they can achieve, what they have achieved, because we can also achieve the same thing. And personally, I believe mm-hmm. that we should actually be telling our youth mm-hmm. more about these people in our schools so that they can become inspired mm-hmm. about who their identity actually is whether that's Certainly. Dr. Abdul Salam whether that's the Andalusian scholars whether that's other Muslim scholars mm-hmm. whether it's not even in the field of science it could be other innovative fields mm-hmm. we should tell them about this and like Salim said mm-hmm. we have to come out of this mm-hmm. who's a heretic who's a Muslim who's not a Muslim we need to put this to a side mm-hmm. so that we can actually ultimately inspire our youth what do you think? Absolutely. I mean Imran you're from Pakistan mm-hmm. and uh, Abdul Salam Held from there mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is, has, it, has, has that meant something for you? Absolutely I think you, in, in life You have to have a role model uh, Whether it's because to religion Or science uh, Regarding any Any You know Any Part of life You have to have some sort of uh, You know uh, Hero And uh, When I used to Study in Pakistan In my physics uh, You know Physics um, uh, Book In my physics book uh, there's this is some you know uh, the couple of paragraphs regarding that of the salam and that really inspires some of the students you know to go into the research so i think if you have a national hero uh, in science then uh, it somehow inspires you so i think you you're very right in saying that we should uh, you know uh, should mention these uh, the indolusian scientists and the current muslim scientists more and more to inspire our youth and uh, uh, to go into the research, and I think Salim rightfully mentioned that, you know, in the Jewish community, uh, they they are very much very much in focus of uh, you know going into the research, and that's why they most of uh, the uh, the Nobel Prize winner are from Jewish uh, community, uh, and what they did is that they they basically from their very childhood, they they put this thing into their children's mind that you know go and do research, and actually this is the this is the theme of Islam, as you mentioned previously, that Islam says that ponder upon the surrounding, you know, uh, that right. ponder upon the surrounding. But unfortunately, as a Muslim, uh, we are not acting upon the... Um, I mean, and you might wonder, I mean, what, why, why should a Muslim even bother? <coughs> yeah, I mean, Salim mentioned, okay, some people are becoming practicing doctors. <coughs> and, and he quote unquote said that they're doing it to live a nice life. Yeah. I'm guessing what he means is there's a nice paycheck behind that. <coughs> okay, but you're still doing something nice. But why research? <coughs> I, I think it's not just about... <coughs> Yes, it is about helping other people, innovating, finding cures, finding ease. Right. But <coughs> there is another underlying reason behind why a Muslim especially must do this. The mm-hmm. Prophet Messiah, peace be upon him, the founder of the MD Muslim community has stated that when a believer studies and ponders over the celestial bodies and the entire universe, it causes their minds to open up and mm-hmm. for them to become enlightened. The result is that they are led towards a firm belief in the existence of God Almighty as mm-hmm. they see the signs and evidence for His existence all around them. So mm-hmm. the idea is that the more you study mm-hmm. and the more you research about mm-hmm. these things, mm-hmm. in, especially in light of the Quran, mm-hmm. your faith will increase in God. Absolutely. And this is actually very, very important. Mm-hmm. If you want to increase your faith, mm-hmm. research. Mm-hmm. Even if it's not your job, even if you are not a 95 researcher, which I know Salim wants more of them, <laughs> but even if you are not a 95 researcher, mm-hmm. be a 6 to 8 researcher. Right. <laughs> Out of right. your job time, mm-hmm. do it because you need it for your faith. Mm-hmm. And I, like before the course started, I think we mentioned one thing, for example, honey. And this is again an increase for faith, but also an increase for helping people as well. 
It's a twofold service. The Quran says that fihi shifa'un that there is some a a liquid that comes out from the bellies of the bee. Yakhruju min butuniha. Okay, mm-hmm. comes from their bellies. Okay. Mm-hmm. And what is it? It is a cure for mankind. Mm-hmm. And of course, we've always understood this to mean what? Honey. Mm-hmm. And yes, mm-hmm. honey has a lot of cures. Right. But in about 2018, there was a, a, a study done on a process uh, which involves an element called melatonin. Mm-hmm. And melatonin is something which is found in what? In the venom of bees. Okay. And what does it do? They did a research on it, one study only. Mm-hmm. And they found that within an hour, it was able to destroy breast cancer cells. Okay, okay. Okay. They didn't further research this. God knows why. Mm-hmm. I personally believe it has a lot to do with Big Pharma. Mm-hmm. This will put an end to the industry. Uh-huh. But the Quran said what it said, and it, this study proves what it proves. Mm-hmm. That yes, indeed, the components of a bee are a cure for mankind. And if the Big Pharma doesn't want to research this, mm-hmm. there is someone who can stand up and research this, and that person is a Muslim. Mm-hmm. He won't just do it for the people. He will do it because the Quran says Quran about says it. Says it. it. Yeah. So we need to consciously be on this game. Mm-hmm. And His Holiness, as He has said, we need to see more of these people. It's not just enough, yes, to celebrate our past. Mm-hmm. We need to have a present. Absolutely. And as uh, one famous movie puts it, <laughs> the present is called the present mm-hmm. because it is a gift. Right. And that's why it's called a present. <laughs> so we must utilize it as such. Mm-hmm. It's a valuable mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Uh, one verse is particularly coming in, into my mind is Allazi khalaqa sab'a samawatin tibaqa ma tara fi khalqir rahmani min tafawut farji al-basara hal tara min futur summa arji al-basara karratin yankalib ilayka al-basaru khasiyun wa huwa that God Almighty says in these verses that if you ponder upon the creation of the uh, heavens and the earth you will not find out even a slightest mistake or slightest you know weakness in the creation of the heaven and the earth and that is the proof of the existence of god and muslim are encouraged to ponder upon the you know creation uh, of the uh, heavens and the earth and you know in this in this particular verse uh, allah the almighty says that you know uh, no matter how much you try you will not find a single weakness in the creation of the world and that's you know i think one of the one of the field of sciences to 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 look into uh, in this uh, that you know why the heaven and the earth are in so much harmony so uh, let's talk about dr abdul salam the first ever muslim to win any nobel prize in any field and still the only one to have won it in physics now more importantly, he was devoted Ahmadi Muslim from a young age reading the five daily prayers and often carried a pocket-sized Holy Quran in his pocket. He had performed Umrah. He once said, <coughs> so, "Excuse me, I am both a believer as well as a practicing Muslim. I am a Muslim because I believe in the spiritual message of the Holy Quran. As a scientist, the Holy Quran speaks to me in that it emphasizes reflection on the laws of nature with examples drawn from cosmology physics biology medicine as signs <coughs> for all men and many of his colleagues reported that upon asking dr salam where his ideas come from he would say god so i think this was uh, he draw you know he drive his inspiration inspiration from the holy quran and uh, and he implemented in his research. We always mm-hmm. have to come back to the Quran. His mm-hmm. his faith in the Quran was very <coughs> inspiring, <coughs> because what we don't want to become is that snowflake individual <laughs> who reads the Quran, and perhaps yes, mm-hmm. 
you might read it at a certain point in time and someone might think well, it doesn't make mm-hmm. sense maybe I shouldn't stand by it mm-hmm. because I will look like a fool mm-hmm. well imagine this mm-hmm. imagine this okay <coughs> the Quran says mm-hmm. that you see the mountains mm-hmm. they are standing still or you think you think, you think huh? that they are standing still, still. Mm. but they are moving mm. now imagine the companions the, 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 the verse was revealed to the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him and uh, Prophet Muhammad is telling the companions mm. that you see these, these mountains over here right uh, we mentioned Uhud yeah, yeah you yeah. see Uhud over here and the yeah. other mountains they're, they're not they look well in place mm. but they're not they're actually moving around yeah mm. now th- those companions how are they going to go to the disbelievers and explain to them mm. the mountains have legs <laughs> They walk at night. <laughs> it's very easy mm. to fold and say, oh, yeah, we don't know. Mm. We'll give some, some kind of interpretation to this. Mm. Whereas someone like Abdul Salam will say, no, <laughs> this is what the Quran says. I'm going to prove it. Prove it yeah. I'm going to prove it. And this verse as well. Mm. Because now we know, of course, they didn't know at that time. Mm-hmm. Mountains do move. Okay. They, in fact, control the tectonic plates that move. Mm. And they are actually the, the, the middle line between them. Mm-hmm. So we now know this is not an absurd claim to make at all. Mm-hmm. Yet the Quran mentions this at a time where again they obviously could not have imagined such mm-hmm. a thing. Mm-hmm. So we should never feel like mm-hmm. we have to yeah, fold at a verse of the Quran. Sure. There is so much truth out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I can mention, we've mentioned a lot of scientific truths. Mm-hmm. We should also mention other truths as well. We've got mentions of historical truths as well. Mm-hmm. In fact, before I even do that, I quickly mention the star of uh, Sirius as well is mentioned in the Quran. Okay. Um mm-hmm. Shi'ara. Mm-hmm. Shi'ara. Okay. Um which is the st- the god says that I take oath of the star of Sirius. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that God chose to take oath by this star mm-hmm. because now we know this star to be the brightest star that we have perceived in the universe. Okay. And God could have chosen any star. Mm-hmm. He mentions mm-hmm. Ashi'ara which is Sirius. And in this chapter we have the word Ashi'ara and we have the word Al-Ard in the mm-hmm. same chapter, mm-hmm. if you mention, if you count the, the words mm-hmm. which are in between Ashi'ara and Al-Ard, mm-hmm. which is 2.61, I think 261 letters, okay. uh, words, sorry. Okay. And we have 2.61 light years, it is exactly the same distance from Earth to the star of Sirius. Wow. That minute. Wow. And there are people who won't bother to research these things mm-hmm. because they have the researching mind, they have the conviction that the Quran has uttered this, it cannot be false. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that this is the you know this is the message of the message of Quran that you know ponder upon the on on your surroundings and then you will you will be amazed uh, from from the truthfulness of the Holy Quran. Now there are other Muslim scientists who got Nobel Prize and uh, Ahmad Zawahil, Egyptian chemist who known as father of uh, femtochemistry, awarded uh, in 1999 Nobel Prize in chemistry. Then uh, there is Azar uh, Sanka. Uh, a Turkish-American molecular biologist who was awarded in 2015 Nobel Prize in Chemistry for his discovery in DNA repair mechanism. Now, um, there's a there's a question, a daunting question: Where are modern Muslim scientists now? Now, most educated Muslim days, Muslim these days, refer attaining a successful and sustainable job rather than investing their time in cutting-edge research, which we have already, you know, talked about that, you know, uh, unfortunately, uh, rather in going to research, Muslims choose to choose to basically go in the job which are more sustainable. Now, financial stability is also a major reason, which is 
gained more easing, you know, um, through clinical practice. ICEO, Islamic World or, uh, Educational uh, and Scientific and Cultural Organization, is working on supporting Muslim scientists in various Muslim countries. However, this plan of action needs to be more ambitious. The number of Muslim Nobel Prize candidates are embarrassingly low. Another reason for the lack of Muslim names in modern science is due to the lack of unity of the Muslim Ummah around the world. Before, despite their political disparities, Islamic nation collectively function as a cohesive community when it comes to the field of sciences. However, in this day and age, political differences mm. prevents cohesive Muslim efforts towards science. I was reading a verse, um, I was actually um, reading commentary from from the commentary of Hazrat Muslim Allah, the second caliph of the Muslim community. Uh, he was um, commenting on this verse that Laysa alaykum junahun antabtaghu fadlam mir rabbikum and this verse comes after the mention of Hajj so Hazrat Muslimah uh, the, the, the son of the promised Messiah the second caliph of the Muslim community said that um, here fadlan means that on the occasion of Hajj Muslim are encouraged to get together and discuss how the Muslim world can progress and excel in the field of sciences and how the in the Muslim world can spread the message of Holy Quran and the message of the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. But he said that unfortunately these gatherings after Hajj are not happening and this verse particularly talk about that uh, it is not sin for you that you seek the bounty of your Lord and, and he says here bounty means to discuss that how Muslim Ummah, how Muslims can excel in words of sciences and other fields. This is exactly mm-hmm. what we need to do. Yeah. And, and Muslims mm-hmm. have faith mm-hmm. in your Quran. Mm-hmm. You just need to put your mind to it. The research and the truth and the science is already there. Mm-hmm. See, the challenge that researchers nowadays have mm-hmm. is they first need to research something and then what mm-hmm. they're trying to research might be true and it might not be true. Mm-hmm. They might end up at a dead end. Yeah. But with the Quran, you already have half of your oh, job done for you. True, true. You f- what you're looking into is the truth. You've established mm-hmm. that already. Mm-hmm. Now you need to research towards finding how exactly we can rationalize it. Mm-hmm. And we've, we've barely, um, you know, we can be- we've got about four, three minutes. Mm-hmm. I'm going to leave you with one more mm-hmm. mention in the Quran. Sure. Where <clears throat> this is from the 1980s, okay? Mm-hmm. And we previously uh, obviously had the Bible and the Torah. But there was never really much mention mm. of, 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 ex- of minute details. Mm. And there were certain details missing uh, about exactly what happened in the time of Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. But the Quran mentioned something which wasn't mentioned in the Torah, nor was it mentioned in mm-hmm. the Injil. Of course, it was not. Okay. And what it mentioned is that Ya Fir'aun, mm-hmm. Pharaoh, he instructed an individual called Haman. Okay. He said, Oh Haman, فَأَوْقِدْ لِي يَا هَامَانُ عَلَى الطِّينِ صَرْحًا Make for me a palace Baked out of clay bricks. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what? Mm-hmm. The thing is, you see, this is important. Mm-hmm. Because there is no mention of an individual Haman in any previous scripture. The Quran just made it up, right? <laughs> and what on earth are you talking about baking clay bricks? Yeah. Because the pyramids that were around and the structures that were around in the time of Pharaoh mm-hmm. were such structures that were carved from rocks, big rocks. Mm-hmm. They would carve them into squares and they would get thousands of slaves to then use ropes to host yeah. them up to the pyramids and the towers, etc. Yeah. <coughs> 1980, they found hieroglyphic scriptures. By the way, um, Muslims in the, t- in the time of Prophet Muhammad didn't even know how to read okay. ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. They couldn't, even if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. But they found these in 1980. Okay. 
And what has been found here is that those scriptures mention something. Mm-hmm. They mention that Firaun, Pharaoh, mm-hmm. had a chief construction worker. Wow. What was his name? Aman. Aman. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. What on earth? Mm-hmm. And what did they do? Mm-hmm. What did they used to do? How did they build those pyramids and towers? Mm-hmm. They didn't carve them. We were wrong. Mm-hmm. They used to get clay okay. in molds. They would bake them in the molds. Mm-hmm. Fire baked them. They would build the first floor. Interesting. They would then go stand on top of the first floor, bake the second floor. Wow. Go on top of the second floor, bake the third floor, etc., etc. So they never used to hoist them up with ropes. Mm, interesting. This was wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Quran said this. We should never have folded on this point mm-hmm. because it's the truth. So Muslim researchers, whether you're a nine-to-five researcher or if you're about to become a six-to-eight researcher, <laughs> do it. Mm-hmm. You will not regret it. It will increase you in your faith. Mm-hmm. It will help other people around this world. And we're coming to the end of the show. So I really need to pay tribute, I say, or should we say give credit <laughs> yeah, to the producers absolutely. of the shows as well. We had Rabbi Nasir who has produced this exact show that you listen to right now, Modern Science and Islam, and also Manahil Khalid who talked about and produced for us the global crisis, food shortage. And sure. we have enjoyed and learned a lot from this show. I would like mm. to end off by saying keep everybody around the world in your prayers. Mm. Whatever tribulations and trials they're going through, may Allah be with them. May Allah help them. May Allah stop the oppressor. The Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said, stop the oppressor Mm -hmm. and his oppression. Mm -hmm. We can stop the oppression, um, the oppressed by helping them. We can stop the oppressor by stopping their oppression. May Allah enable us to do this. We'll be back, of course, every single weekday for the drive time show. Um, What is it? Four to six. (laughs) And it's a live show. We hope to see you then. Mm -hmm. For now, we're going to go to the news. Assalamu alaikum.